So uh, the video is going to kind of go along with what we're talking today, uh, talking about today. We're, we're talking about really worth the wait, right? We went through uh, a series of prophecies last week um, in Matthew 1 and 2 that were fulfilled in Christ. Um, we saw how, how Christ, uh, even in his early life, fulfilled these five specific prophecies from the Old Testament uh, just in the first two chapters of, of the New Testament in Matthew 1 and 2. So we looked at some of those. Um, we saw how the people of the Old Testament were really waiting for one ultimate promise, the promise of the Messiah in which all the promises are fulfilled. Right, and that's that's in Christ and Christ alone. We see that in Second Corinthians one twenty, which said, "For all the promises of God find their yes in Him that is in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory." Right, all the promises of God throughout the entirety of Scripture find their yes in Christ. Point to they point us to ultimately one Messiah, the, the same Messiah that that all these people that we saw in that video in the Old Testament uh, were looking forward to, right? The the coming of one greater than themselves. Um, and now we look back on the cross, right? Jesus, who did come, who has fulfilled um, the the Old Testament and and is still fulfilling prophecies, right? And and we focus on him, the one that the entirety of Scripture points to. We hold on to uh, the promises that Jesus is enough, right? Those are, those are some of the promises we're going to look at today, that, that Christ's sacrifice for us uh, is enough. We can hold on to the fact that he has saved us. We talk about this a lot here at First Baptist, the fact that he has saved us, and he is saving us, and he will save us, right? We see that in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, those he, who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified, Right? I love how Paul puts that in the past tense, right? Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified, right? Christ is still justifying us, is still sanctifying us, is still making us new, saving us. And those who he justified, he also glorified. And none of us in this room sitting here are, are in our glorified state yet. But Paul puts it in this past tense as if it's already happened because it is that sure, right? It is sure that Christ, who is faithful, will keep all of his promises, that he who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory will do so. Right? Christ, uh, his promises are so sure. We talked about that a little bit last week, the difference. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, we talked about the difference between promise and prediction. Right? Our world makes a lot of predictions. Um, I predicted at the beginning of 2018 that the Red Sox would win the World Series. Right? I couldn't promise that, uh, but I was pretty confident and I predicted it, and my prediction came true, right? And, uh, and, and we all can say amen to that, um, that the Red Sox won the World Series. Right? But, but I, can't, I can't promise those things. I'm not in control, right? And that's something we, we long for, we hunger for control, right? I wish I could control those things. I wish I could control other things in my life. Um, but we can't. That's the reality of it. So so often we find ourselves making predictions, but the one who made all these promises is faithful. He is in control. right? As Matthew 28, 20 tells us, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. right? Christ, who is faithful, will keep all those, those promises, and they will come true, and they all find their yes in Christ, in Christ alone. So something we have to ask ourselves um, before we look at this, this handout and look at some of the promises is what promises are we holding on to? 
right? Because we all hold on to some kind of promise. We all hold on to some kind of hope. Uh, We live in a world who is oftentimes hopeless and looking for some kind of hope. We talked about this in in the Youth Sunday School this morning, um, about the most popular movies right now are superhero movies, right? Because we're looking for some kind of hope, right? We're looking for some kind of superhero to bring us hope, to to save us, to bring us comfort, right? And so so often that becomes uh, these fictional characters that we watch in movies or play in video games or or do whatever to, to, to find hope in, right? My generation especially is finding hope in something like a fictional superhero. But we have one great superhero in which all of the Bible points to, who is a true superhero, who is the only true superhero, and that's King Jesus, right? So we have to ask ourselves again, what promises are we holding on to? We often hold on to promises that our employers make. Right? I promise that you're going to make this much money, and you're going to have this many benefits, and then when you've been here for this long, you're going to have this many uh, benefits, and, and, and this, you're going to make this much money. Right? We hold on to those promises. Right? We, we sometimes find comfort in that. Right? We oftentimes find our identity in that. Well, this is what I do. This is how much money I make. This is who def- what defines me. Right? When we hold on to that promise over the promise of Christ and his work, we're placing that, our career, uh, the promises that our employers make as our idol, as our God. Right? Maybe we hold on to the promises of marriage. Right? Matt talked about this a little bit last week. Um, um, marriage was meant to be this promise. Unfortunately, in our modern culture, right, it turns into this uh, wishy-washy thing that we can end at any time, at any moment. Right? Um, but so often we hold on to those promises of marriage, right? promises that a spouse made, promises that the spouse will always look good for you or all, will always be there for you or always do certain things for you or whatever. And we hold on to those. And when we hold on to those promises, over the promises of Christ, we're putting our marriage as our idol, right? Or maybe we hold on to the promises of the American dream, right? We, we grow up learning that we can follow our heart and follow our dreams and do whatever we want to do and make whatever amount of money we want to make and retire and have easy, comfortable lives. And we buy into the lie of the American dream. And we hold on to those promises. And I know so many people who are sitting in pews who are holding on to those promises more than they are holding on to the promises of Christ. The promise that he has predestined and called and justified and glorified us. The promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The promise that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The promise that he has washed our sins white as snow. That he has made our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. Right? We, we hold on to these other promises. We have to ask ourselves, like, what kind of promises are determining what we do in life? Right? Because the promises we hold on to will determine what we find our identity in, what we do, the things we talk about, the things we focus our mind on. I talk about this to my students often. What you daydream about the most and think about the most is often the thing that you are looking to for the most comfort, the thing that is your idol, the thing that you are running to, that you are clinging to. Right? We all have those. We all have some kind of promise that we're holding on to that we find comfort and fulfillment in. And anything other than Christ and his promises is our God. And so this morning, 
Uh, we're going to look at some prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. If you got a bulletin, you should have gotten one of these large handouts. I know the bulletin was much larger today than usual. It's not because we had a bunch of announcements, because we have this handout with about 55 promises uh, that were made in the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled in the New Testament. We're not going to read all 55 of those, uh, but we are going to read uh, a, an amount of them um, because uh, I think that's what we are called to do. That's what Paul told Timothy to do, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. And so this morning we're going to take some time to just read through Scripture. Um, and I pray that that the Holy Spirit would open up your heart and eyes to see uh, Christ and his beauty more and more as we read this morning um, and look at some of these promises. Before we do that, I, th- I think uh, J.T. English um, who, who preached the sermon that Matt put on the um, Sunday school questions from last week, sums it up well when he says, the Old Testament is the part of the story where promises are being made. The New Testament is the part of the story where the promises are being fulfilled. Right? So there's no gap there. Right? As the video that we watched said, um, there's, the, the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. Right? It all points ultimately to one character, to one uh, hero, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the hero of Scripture. And so we're going to see that as we read through some of these prophecies. So let's look at number one. The nations will be blessed through Abraham's lineage. The prophecy is from Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's fulfilled in Acts 3. And you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's go to number five. David's offspring will have an eternal kingdom. The prophecy is from 2 Samuel 7. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's fulfilled in the very first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Number six, a virgin will give birth, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Prophecy from Isaiah 7.14, which we talked about last week. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel. It's fulfilled in Luke 1.35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Skip over to number nine. Christ's ministry will destroy the devil's work. The prophecy from Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her off, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That's fulfilled in 1 John 3.8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Number 10, Jesus will have a sinless, blemish-free life and ministry. The prophecy is from Exodus 12. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. By the way, there's a lot of that um, throughout, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, that's pointing us to something, right? That's why it's important to read, and it's fulfilled in Hebrews 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Let's go to number 12. Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice. The prophecy is found in Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. And that's fulfilled in Hebrews 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Skip to number 16. The Messiah would be a stone that causes people to stumble. The prophecies in Isaiah 8.14. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare, the fulfillment. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for in 1 Peter 2. Skip over to number 21. Jesus will be a gentle redeemer of the Gentiles. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. It's fulfilled in Matthew 12. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he's brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Skip to number 24. The the Messiah will have a throne that is everlasting. The prophecy in Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's fulfilled in Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Skip all the way over to 29. Christ will be our Passover lamb. The prophecies is from Exodus 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not per permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. And it's fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We're going to read a few more of these, but hopefully you're starting to see this theme of the Old Testament finding its fulfillment in one person and one person alone. That's King Jesus. Number 31, the Messiah's blood will be spilled for atonement. Prophecy from Leviticus 17.11, the book no one likes to read, but here, here it is, fulfilling pointing to Jesus, right? So important for us. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, fulfilled in Matthew 26. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Next one, number 32. Jesus will be lifted up, and everyone who looks on him will live. Uh, Matt preached on this a couple weeks ago. Numbers 21. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's fulfilled in John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We're going to skip over to number, let me get there, 40. Everyone will abandon the Messiah. The prophecy from Psalm 31. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. And those who see me on the street flee from me, fulfilled in Mark 14, uh, 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Number 42, the Messiah will be quiet before his accusers. The prophecies in Psalm 38. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin. All day long they scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear. Like the mute who cannot speak. It's fulfilled in Matthew 27. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Number 43. God's anointed will not see decay. 
Prophecies in Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Fulfilled in Acts 2. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Skip to number 47. We're almost done. Prophecies from Psalm 118. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Fulfilled in Luke 24. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Number 48, the Messiah will conquer death. Prophecy from Isaiah 25. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Number 51. God will raise up a faithful priest who does God's will. The prophecy from 1 Samuel 2. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. It's fulfilled in Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And because I uh, had uh, printed this out backwards, we got to go backwards to see number 53. But number 53, the Messiah will have all authority over judgment. Prophecy from Isaiah 22, 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Fulfilled in Revelation 3, 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. To that we can all say amen. We see... Christ throughout this, and I would encourage you to take this home. And of course, we only read about 19 of those prophecies there. There's about 55 of them. And you can see time after time after time God's faithfulness um, as we see this promise made in the Old Testament and then this promise fulfilled in the New Testament. And of course, there's so much more than just that. We see every story ultimately pointing to Christ. Right, we see every story pointing to to the Messiah who would come, who would die. Right, as we sang, he was born to die, and he would rise again, and he would take his rightful place at the throne. And now, even now, he is ruling and reigning over everything, over every part of creation. And that's the one we worship, and that's why we hold on to the promises of Christ, not to our own promises, not to the promises of our uh, career. The promises that our employers make, the promises of our marriage, the promises of our kids, the promises of, of the American dream, the promises of whatever. We hold on, as followers of Jesus, to the promises of Jesus and Jesus alone. That He is good. 
that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Right? That's the ultimate promises, as, as we see all scriptures pointing to Christ. And, and as we just read, as you guys saw, there's about 19 that we read, 55 more prophecies that are pointing to Christ. But in reality, kind of like the video we watched, we see all of scripture whispering Jesus' name, pointing to Christ. Spurgeon said there's a scarlet thread through all of scriptures that has, has one united theme, and that's Jesus. Right? That's why we see Jesus as the greater Adam. Or we can say Jesus is the, the greater Jonah, or the greater David, or the greater, greater Abraham, or the greater whatever. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. All scripture is pointing to one hero, Jesus. We see that through these prophecies that we, that we looked at. We see that through Acts chapter 13, as, as we read last week together in here, um, um, as Paul was preaching, and he was showing how all of the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. We can see that in, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fills him and he proclaims the gospel, right, that, that Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Messiah. Right? All of Scripture is pointing to him. Uh, every book in the New Testament is, is saying that. That's the argument for in Colossians, for example, that Paul is making. Jesus is it. You don't need these other things. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is the one over all creation. Right, we see those things, and of course we see that from Jesus himself. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. We see Jesus here toward the end of his earthly life, uh, after he has risen, before he has ascended to the Father. A famous story, but something key that Jesus says here, that, that Jesus does um, to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, shows us what the entirety of Scripture is about. So Luke chapter 24, we're going to start in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus has that kind of power. He can do whatever he wants. You hear people try to explain that while they're facing the sun or whatever. Jesus can, can hide himself if he wants, right? And so we see Jesus do that. Verse 17, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, right? We see this hope from the Old Testament. We see this, this hope that the Jewish people had that, that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. Right? Of course, the Pharisees were fighting that, and, and the Jewish leaders were fighting that and saying that he was a heretic, and, and he was blaspheming against God. And we see, we see the rest of the Jewish people thinking, Jesus is it. Jesus is going to come and conquer Rome and, and, and set us free. And again, focusing on, on physical, um, fleeting things, right? like we so often do. The promises that we often hold on to are physical, fleeting things, things that 10,000 years from now will not matter. Right, 10,000 years from now, uh, or even right now, let's say, it did not matter that, that 
Israel was under captivity of Rome, right? It didn't matter. Because King Jesus came to establish a better kingdom than just a nation. Jesus came to establish a better kingdom, a lasting kingdom. That's his kingdom that will never end. Every other kingdom is going to end. The kingdom of America, as great as, as we say this nation is, is going to end. It's not going to last. But Jesus is. And Jesus' kingdom is going to, to rule forever and ever and ever. Jesus' kingdom will never end. And we see that. That's our hope. Verse 21 again. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And now Jesus talks. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And here's where we're going to key in on. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, so Jesus takes scripture, right? They have the Old Testament, and he's going through all of it. And saying, this is about me. This is pointing to the Messiah. This is about Christ. And of course, as we get down to uh, the, the latter part of that story, we see the disciples sitting down to eat, and Jesus breaks the bread, and their eyes are opened, and they see this is Jesus. And then all of a sudden, this cool thing happens. He disappears from their sight. And, and they said, weren't our hearts burning within us, right, as he spoke? Right? They, they knew that this was truth. They knew that what Jesus was saying as he went through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so forth were pointing to himself, right? I think it's so interesting. He starts with Moses and all the prophets. Moses did not just start in Exodus. If you guys know who wrote um, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was Moses, right? So Jesus is starting at the very beginning and going through Scripture and showing this is about me, this is about me, this points to me, right? This is pointing to the Messiah. Right? There's, it's not just a series of disconnected stories. The Old Testament is, is not about, and unfortunately we've made it about, this thing that tries to make us into more moral people. God's ultimate goal is not to make us into a group of morally sound people. God's goal is to make us into a group of people who are in love with him radically and who desire to be like him and who desire to worship him and who desire to proclaim him as we go. There are a lot of morally sound people who live by the, the statements made in the Old Testament who are lost in going to hell. King Jesus is the only one that saves. King Jesus is the only one that the Old Testament and the New Testament is pointing to. All, scripture, all of Scripture is pointing to the cross. The Old Testament is not written to make us moral people, but rather to point us to the one whom it is all about and to make us fall in love with him more and more. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus was doing here as he, as he went on this road to Emmaus, showing him the things concerning himself. I love the way that Summit Church did this a couple years ago. If, if you guys got the Sunday school questions for next week, the, the sermon link is at the bottom of that. 
and it'll be up on the website tomorrow. Um, they, it was called Christmas at DPAC 2016. Summit Church is, is where J.D. Greer, who's the current SBC president, is a uh, pastor of. And, and in one year, in 2016, they, they preached through the entire Bible. They started in Genesis, went to Revelation, preached through the entire Bible in one year. And, and as they ended it, um, they looked at this passage at Luke chapter 24. And, and J.D. Greer said it, it might have looked something like this. And we're going to kind of go through every book of the Bible and see how Jesus is revealed. I, I love this. Uh, this should make us just love Christ more as we read this. So let's, let's read starting in Genesis. In Genesis, Jesus was the Word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, Jesus was the Passover lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the doorposts of our heart so that we can escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, Jesus was the temple, the holy place where we meet with God. In Numbers, Jesus was our ever-present guide, our pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, Jesus was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, Jesus was the broken Savior rising up to rescue us. In Ruth, Jesus was our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Jesus was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face our giants all alone. In First and Second Kings, Jesus was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, Jesus was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, Jesus was our advocate, risking his life to restore us to royalty. In Job, Jesus was our living redeemer. In the Psalms, Jesus was the one who hears our cries. In, Pro- in Proverbs, Jesus is wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the meaning that lets us escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is our lover and our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, Jesus was the spirit that writes God's laws on our hearts. In Lamentations, Jesus was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Jesus was the river of life, bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, Jesus was the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, Jesus was the ever-faithful husband pursuing his unfaithful bride. In Joel, Jesus was the restorer of all that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, Jesus was our burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, the prophet cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. In Micah, the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, your reason to rejoice even when our fields are empty. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the great reformer. In Haggai, Jesus is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, Jesus is the pierced son whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. Right? We see this, this connect pointing to Christ, pointing to the cross, as he tells us there in Luke 24, pointing to himself. But the Bible doesn't end there. Right? The, the Bible goes on, and we, we have the New Testament, and we, as, as New Testament believers, have the, priv- the privilege of looking back on the completed Bible. Right? We're not going to add anything, but we see Christ throughout that in Matthew he's the king of the Jews in Mark he's the son of God in Luke he's the savior born to us in the city of David Christ the Lord in John he's the word become flesh dwelling among us in Acts he is Christ the risen Lord proclaiming salvation to the nations in Romans he's the justifier 
In First and Second Corinthians, the Spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians, He is the righteousness imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, our righteous armor. In Philippians, the God who meets our every need. In Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. In First and Second Thessalonians, He's descending from heaven with a shout, coming to meet us together in the clouds. In First and Second Timothy, He's the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, He's our faithful pastor. In Philemon, He's our redeemer, restoring us to service. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, the life at work in our faith. In First and Second Peter, our living cornerstone. In First, Second, and Third John, our advocate pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our Savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in his presence with great joy. And in Revelation, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's the king we serve, Christian. The, the king that all of Scripture is pointing to. So as we, as we read Scripture, we should read it through the lens of Christ. Christ has fulfilled it all. Christ has done the work. We don't add anything to that. We simply see and worship. We simply see and obey, following Him. Because He's done it all. We don't add anything to that. King Jesus is it. That's what we should see this Christmas as we go through Scripture and we see these promises. So last week we, we talked about those five specific promises, but in reality, all of Scripture is pointing to Him. During Advent, uh, we're not just celebrating one portion of Scripture with Jesus' birth. That's important. That's good. We should read that. We should remember that. But rather, we're, we're studying and focusing on the entirety of it because all Scripture is pointing to Him. Right, we're focusing on, on Jesus who was born to die for us. Jesus is not a little baby anymore, right? He, he's, we see him, right, as we look back on the cross as this, this bloody, disfigured person on the cross, and then he conquered that, and now he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God forever and ever and ever with all power. And one day he will come back riding on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood, with a name on his thigh, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with a sword coming out of his mouth, right? In, in conquering rulership. We see Jesus who, who will always be, who has always been, who will always rule and reign. This Christmas we're not just celebrating nostalgic moments. Right? It's, it's okay to, to, to be with family and hang out and to remember nostalgic moments. Right? I think of seeing the lights and, and, and drinking hot chocolate as I walk through Old Town right, in Albuquerque. That, that's kind of my memories, and we have memories of that. And, and we look back on that, but that's not ultimately what we're celebrating. We're ultimately not celebrating a time off of work or a time to be with family or a time to, to pass out presents. Rather, we're, ser- we're celebrating the God-man who came to die and rise again, conquering Satan, sin, and death. We're, conquer- we're, we're, we're worshiping and we're celebrating King Jesus, the conquering king who's ruling and reigning now, whom all of Scripture points to. Let's remember that this Christmas as we, as we focus on things, as we gather with family. Make much of Jesus. Make much of Jesus as you talk to that family member you don't necessarily want to talk to. Make much of Jesus as, as we gather with people that we might not like, that we might not get along with. Make much of Jesus. Point people to Christ. Point people to the one who all of life is about, to who all of history is about, to who all of Scripture is about. Point to Christ and remember this Christmas that only Jesus, who satisfied the promises of the Old Testament, will satisfy our thirsting souls. 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you are awesome. You are worthy of all of our praise. King Jesus, I pray that um, as we read Scripture this, this morning and as we focused on you, as we saw how you were the fulfillment of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, God, I pray that we'd fall more in love with you. God, that we'd know the Scripture is not, ultimately not about us, not about what we can do. It's not about a human hero or what human heroes did. As we read Scripture, we see broken people, broken messes such as ourselves, and we see one hero fulfilling all of it and doing all the work, and that's you, King Jesus. God, I pray that we would see and savor you more. We would fall more in love with you. God, this week, help us to live as people who have been changed, who have been made new, who do not have hope in this world, who do not hold on to the promises of this world, but hold on to the promises of you, the promises that only you can fulfill. Help us to be to find fulfillment in that, to find our identity in that, to define ourselves by who you are and what you have done for us. King Jesus, make us new. Change us. Make us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.